Hello and welcome to episode three of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. How's things? Pretty good. Pretty good. And uh, actually I've had, a, I've had something in the post today. Um, oh yeah. All the way from the United States I've had a woolen sack, uh, what is it? A woolen sack oh. Raptor, Raptor. 162mm f4.5 uh, lens for my Meridian, so I'm uh, looking forward to getting that running, but uh, more to the point, you've been very busy, haven't you, over this last week? Yeah, well, last weekend, really. Yeah, I've been uh, shooting some direct positive paper in my Toyo uh, 45A, which was a lot of fun. I've not shot with that before, so I did some experiments in the darkroom and pre-flashed it to see um, what was the first what was the pre-flash time I needed to do. So I haven't actually used direct positive paper before, and I haven't used it not pre-flashed. But I did some portraits of my daughter with the lens wide open, and I really liked the results. And I did, uh, and I used some x-ray film cut down as well. And I've been printing loads of pictures from a photo meetup a few weeks ago. Yeah, and it's been, uh, it's been a fun weekend. Well, as as ever, whenever you say something, I always feel like I, I want to start asking questions because there's a few things going on there, such as like pre-flashing paper and things like yeah, that. Yeah, we'll save that for another. I think we have to because we've got a guest this week, and uh, and it's a special guest. We've got Ben Horn with us uh, of YouTube fame. Hello, Ben. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you on. Um, in particular, uh, when we when we started this podcast and we started the uh, Facebook group, uh, we put some we put a post in the Facebook group, which is called the same name as the podcast, the Large Format Photography Podcast Facebook group, and uh, we asked people who would you like to get onto the show, and I think your name was possibly the very first name that actually came came out of the hat. So uh, you know, we're actually quite pleased with ourselves to even get you at all. So it's great great to have you here, Ben. I'm I'm a pretty easy get. I gotta say that, but uh, you know, it's uh, I, I think it's fun doing the podcast. Uh, you know, talk about all those stories that come up and 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 all that kind of fun stuff that goes with that. All right. Well, let's let's get straight into it. Um, and I'm going to ask the question which you've probably asked, been asked many times before, um, and that's going to be: tell us a bit about yourself, how you got here, how you got into large format photography, and anything else you might want to tell us about yourself. Um, so, uh, it kind of all goes back to, um, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in, in photography, uh, in, in high school, uh, I graduated in 1999 and, uh, that's when digital was kind of first starting to come out a little bit at the time I was taking some, some film classes in high school. And, uh, after graduating from high school, I uh, got some digital cameras and was kind of playing with them for a little while. And, uh, and ended up kind of going the route of the digital SLRs that were kind of getting better and better at the time. But ultimately I found that the work I was producing, I just wasn't really satisfied with the photos I was shooting. And uh, at the time I thought it had something to do with, Hey, maybe the, you know, the equipment, this or that, or, you know, something along those lines. Um, but kind of deep down, I, I did know that it was just mostly cause I, I just wasn't really working hard enough. I wasn't really trying hard enough. And then, uh, a little while later, uh, a friend of mine suggested I just get a you know a four by five camera and and uh, go shoot some photos that way since you know I really enjoy doing landscape stuff. And there was that one trip I went on where it kind of 
it really made me kind of rethink my whole process because I brought both the digital and the film setup, which was really ridiculous, by the way. It was just way too much equipment to haul around on one hike. And uh, it was when I went on that trip that I just knew that the the large format stuff, that just there's a different mentality of working with it where it makes you work a little harder. It makes you think ahead a little bit more. And that is really the push that I needed in order to finally produce work that I was really satisfied with, where I can look at a photo and be completely happy with the, the exposure, the subject, the light, uh, and everything that kind of goes along with it. And now I've, uh, that was back in uh, 2009, I believe, is when I first started, or when I went on my first uh, solo landscape trip using a large format. Later that year, I got an 8x10, and that's what I've been using ever since. And it's really cool to look back at the photos I shot you know, 10 years ago and still be 100% satisfied with them and know that the decisions that I you know, made in order to take those photos, if I can go back in time, I'd still make those exact same decisions. Um, so it kind of not having regrets is, is kind of nice. And that's something I think that large format really um, kind of brings with it, which is, which is really fun. But uh, Ben, can I can I ask a, a kind of kickoff question? It's not yeah. the one, not the one that perhaps you thought I was going to ask you. Uh, I, I've been reading the uh, memoir memoir uh, by Sally Mann. You'll be familiar with mm-hmm. Sally Mann, large format, sort of lot of wet collodion stuff and pictures of her kids and dead bodies. Yeah. Not, necess- not necessarily in that order. But I just got to this point today, and I thought, ah, that's interesting. And let me just read it to you. It's only a, a short sentence or two. She says, in general, I'm past taking pictures for the sake of seeing how things look in a photograph. I think it was Gary Winogrand, possibly, who said that. He, he said that I take pictures for the sake of seeing how things look in a photograph. So Sally says she's past that. She says, although sometimes for fun, I still do that. These days, I'm more interested in photographing either things sorry, these days I'm more interested in photographing things either to understand what they mean in my life or to illustrate a concept. So she says, these days I'm more interested in photographing things either to understand what they mean in my life or to illustrate a concept. Now, I've been listening to enough of your videos over the years, Ben, and uh, feel like I've been along on these journeys with you. And you, you talk about looking for pictures which, which tell a story quite mm-hmm. a bit. So really, you know, what, why, at the risk of me just answering your question for you, why, why, are you, why are you photographing? Sally Mann says she's doing it for um, uh, things that, to, things that me, to, sit, to understand what they mean in her life or to illustrate a concept. But what, what about you? I think it's kind of a combination of, of what she said. I mean, some of it is a matter of, I mean, you'll hear me in the video sometimes saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, curious how this is going to look on film. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think in shooting color, there is, there's more variables added, um, when you shoot color, as far as like the way the different colors are going to react. And a lot of times I'll see something that's very visually interesting and I will, it's kind of going through my mind, you know, how is this going to look like as a photo? Um, and I kind of look forward to seeing how this looks like as a photo. Um, but there's other scenes too, where you try to go for something a little bit deeper. You try to take a photo that has 
a bit more of a meaning to it where you're in these, you know, really beautiful areas where, uh, I mean, there's these, these trees that survive in, in harsh conditions and you look at the geology of these places and think about how many, you know, millions of years it took to kind of carve them. And you're just kind of, you know, wandering through this Canyon somewhere. And you, you also, I mean, I want to kind of try to capture some of that in a photo. And that's kind of where I get to uh, the storytelling aspect where I, I do want to try to capture that feeling of being there. I think that's kind of what it comes down to for the stuff that I do. Um, especially some of these areas where like it's a, a canyon I backpacked into where there's not a lot of people that visit there. And so you just have the place all to yourself. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what it comes down to me as far as, capturing the sense of awe that I have for some of these places um, in combination with the first part, which it really is sometimes, Hey, this is some cool looking cracked mud. I don't know how this is going to look like on photo. You know, it may not necessarily tell a story, but it's pretty visually interesting. So I, I think it's kind of a mixture, a mixture of those kind of two different ways of thinking about things. I, I, I watch you trampling up and down these, um, uh, these washers and, and down the valleys and things. And and I'm, I'm you, you must spend half the time working out the video because there's all these shots of you walking into the distance. Then you must have to stop and walk back and switch it off and move the camera. Uh, how does that does that not distract you all that video making compared with the, the picture making? Uh, do you enjoy both aspects of it? It really uses kind of a different part of the brain, which is kind of nice uh -huh. um, when I'm out there looking for photos. Um, it's something I really enjoy, but there's something kind of fun about the video side of things. Mm. And, you know, all the, all those times when I'll, you know, set up the clip and then like, you know, hike up a sand dune and then come back. You must be naked. <laughs> <laughs> those, those are the brutal ones. I will say that. But uh, uh, there's another way of looking at it. Those, those clips where I stop and set up the camera, it also means I get to stop and take a break for a little while. So, uh, so it's not as though I'm just, you know, you know, doubling the, the distance I'm hiking for those. Usually it's kind of like, I'm going to stop anyways, get some water, might as well set up the tripod, roll a little video, kind of wander that there, come back again. Um, but it's, it's a different process. There's a lot of things where I know that I, I can take a very effective photo of a particular subject, but in video, I mean, telling the story of it is great, but I know that I can't really show it in the same way in video. But there's some scenes that, are so beautiful that, you know, I'll stop and I'll, I'll record a video clip of it because I know that a photo can't do it justice. So you're kind of actively engaging kind of several different ways of kind of being creative. And I, I think when you put it together, it kind of does tell a greater story about a location, but it is also pretty demanding. And I usually end up kind of getting burnt out after about, you know, like five to seven days. And then I'm just, you know, that, that's it. I can't really kind of keep working at it. But um, there is another process where once I get home, where I'm able to kind of put those videos together and you kind of revisit that sort of creative aspect of, you know, throwing together the, the clips and then the music and everything where that's also a process that, that I really do enjoy. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, it, it's a fun thing to do. Um, and it, it also is a sort of thing where it, uh, it does take a lot of, a lot of effort, but it's fun. You mentioned, well, certainly, you're, you know, you've, to anybody who doesn't watch your videos, and if not, why not? They are just works of art in themselves, and I think you know the production values you attribute to them, the uh, the care you clearly take is a real, you know, you should you should 
feel very proud and um, you know uh, I, I commend them uh, you know the, the amount of effort you put into them Ben they're, they're great I appreciate that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about working harder um, on the converse side if a, if a photo is easy for you does it lack value to you it does it, it really does because um, I, I think it really comes down to the thing where you know, the things that you work hardest for are the things that you'll appreciate more. Um, I think that applies to, to most things in life. And there's, part- there's been some photos I've taken out of my portfolio that were really easy shots. Um, so, but it's also a balance because just because a photo is hard to take doesn't mean it was a good photo. Mm. But it also sometimes means that if you had to work a little harder to take it, that perhaps you'll put a little more into it. And sometimes it does come through in the photo itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I watch your photo unveiling, revealing. That's what you call it, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, and and I'm. It's great when you do that because you're you're doing it. Is is it actually the first time you've seen these transparencies when you? When yeah, you, when you get those out for the show. Exactly. There, there's been a rare time where, um, like, my audio was horrible, so I had to redo the whole thing. Mm. Um, so I had to pretend and act surprised when I see the pictures, but. <laughs> By and large, yeah, that's the the first moment I actually see the photos. I don't take any sneak peeks or anything before looking at it on camera. And you you made reference. I'm going to come back to the working harder thing in a minute because that's got to be something to do with why you lug eight by ten stuff around. But you you were talking about the use of color as well when you were talking about working harder. And I've written down a few things about your use of color. You know, you're 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 clearly. I mean, I know you've shot black and white, but you don't share much of it. But clearly, the 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 color stuff really ticks the boxes for you. Mm-hmm. But you're, you know, you're you're working in some quite tricky conditions. I was watching your latest Death Valley Zion trip, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you've just, you know, you you shot that picture of the fallen cottonwood tree in the snow, which I'd seen you photograph the year mm-hmm. before in the sunshine. And but by the way, I prefer the one with the snow on. Interesting. You were asking, weren't you? I just yeah. I was curious about kind of what people's thoughts were on that one. I'm I'm kind of undecided, but I'm actually kind of gone towards the one without snow. But I'm I'm like almost fifty fifty on. Well, what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But with with color slide film, you're using Velvia fifty. You're using Provia one hundred. Yeah. And some Ektar color negative. Is that pretty much the stock that, you're using? That's correct. Yeah, that's my primary film. So I've written down um, to ask you about the, the use of those. And I know you do talk about it now and again on as you're, you know, you talk about the latitude. I've actually asked you in, in some comments about elaborating on your metering technique. So Ben, would you be able to, without giving away all your trade secrets, just give us some hints and tips on using slide films in those conditions that you find yourself in, which is like dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some like that snow, those snow pictures, there must be some, some of them are quite high contrast when you haven't got that beloved reflective light. And we'll talk about that later, but really just talk a little bit about the use of slide film in, in large format, Ben. Yeah. So I, I really do enjoy using slide film. Um, one of the reasons is that you can see right away how the photo turned out. Um, and you just have to make sure that you use it for subjects that it's appropriate for. So, uh, usually scenes with a relatively limited dynamic range, 
Um, and then you also have to kind of learn the the character of each film and how it's going to react in certain situations. So for the longest time, I've used Velvia 50, and that is a film that deals, I mean, it's a really high contrast, high saturation, though not, um, it's not overboard for the saturation compared to, you know, what a person could do with, you know, Photoshop and stuff. But it's definitely more, uh, more saturated than, than uh, like Provia, which is more of a, a neutral film. Um, but you just have to be really careful with the shadows. You have to be very careful with the highlights. So I usually will shoot slide film in relatively subdued lighting conditions, um, situations that don't have a lot of natural contrast because the slide film is going to build all that contrast in there. Um, Velvia 50 handles quite well in reflected canyon light, um, though shadows can oftentimes go very, very blue on it. Mm. Um, Provia has become one of my favorites for desert photography, kind of like more Grand Vista, um, kind of blue hour sort of stuff. Um, Provia handles really well with long exposures. You can actually go up to, I think it's about 15 minutes or so before you have to start uh, adding extra time for reciprocity failure. Oh, so, now that, 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 that's interesting because, <laughs> yeah. because um, with my other podcast hat on, with the Lensless podcast, we're, we're, a lot of folks we have on there are obsessed with reciprocity. And why wouldn't they be? Because they're shooting through a tiny little hole. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, if you look at the, the charts, uh, Provia goes a long time. So, I mean, I took some pictures that were quite a ways before sunrise and quite a ways after <clears throat> sunset on my Death Valley trip. And for those scenes, I didn't have to calculate any reciprocity failure where with Velvia 50, you got to start calculating it at four seconds, which will then become a five second exposure. Yeah. Um, so, but Provia has less contrast, it has less saturation. Um, I just find that it works really well for, you know, desert sunrise, desert sunset, desert blue hour, where Velvia can be a little too much. Um, I just don't like using Velvia for um, sort of the sunrise, sunset sort of pictures where there's a lot of natural color already because it will exaggerate that and it goes a little overboard. Um, but in Canyon light in uh, like reflected light in canyons and stuff like that, uh, Velvia handles very, very well. And then, uh, then I'll use Ektar if I have a very high contrast scene with some really deep shadows some really bright highlights. And you just have to make sure you don't underexpose Ektar, but you can let the highlights kind of fall where they go. And I don't think anyone's ever, like said to themselves, ah, oh, this picture would have been great, except for I totally, you know, overexposed that sheet of Ektar. Uh, but almost everyone at some point has underexposed it. It gets really kind of to be a muddy mess. Hmm. So that's kind of my, the the different films I use. The slide film, if the light can handle it. Uh, color negative film, if it's a high contrast scene. Um, and I find that between those three films, it works quite well. But you have to be really good with your light meter. Uh, and meter the scene and know which film is going to be appropriate. It just means I have to haul a lot more stuff. You, but, yeah. So if you're, if you're looking at one of those sunrise pictures, you know, where you've left your camera out all night and you're looking for the yeah. sun, to, sun to poke, we'll come onto that as well in a minute. Come, you're mm -hmm. waiting for the sun to come up. Uh, are you, uh, I mean, how, how are you, how are you metering that? Are you looking, are you looking at that scene and thinking, well, there are some shadows there which I want detail in, and and then there's these presumably the sky which is going to be the brightest bit, mm -hmm. um, and then just looking at the, the number of stops in be, in between is that is that the kind of 
So I'll use grad filters. Um, and then basically that's what I'm doing. I, I, for the most part, I kind of threw a grad filter on there. Then I base my exposure mostly on the foreground. Okay. Um, So you're you're trying to bring the sky down to the same, in the same range as the foreground. Is that exactly, Mm. exactly. And and I've kind of learned, you know, if you're shooting towards the sun, then you'll probably need a three-stop filter. If the sun's kind of at your back, but it's hitting the mountains, but the foreground's in shade, usually a two-stop filter is all you need. Okay. Um, And then I'll I'll kind of meter the sky as well, and then just kind of do the math as far as, oh, you know, the filter takes it down two stops, so then you got to kind of do the mental math on your meter reading. Um, But yeah, if you kind of pay more attention to metering the foreground than use a proper grad, you typically end up fine. And you can just hold the grad up too and just kind of look through it, and you'll know if it's too strong or not. It's not strong enough. A lot of it's going to come from experience because you know you're you're going back to those places year in year out, aren't you? Shooting often sim- similar scenes or going back to the same place. Um, yeah, I mean, there's I basically I'll, I like revisiting the same you know general locations, um, but then once you kind of I'll spend some part of a trip you know, shooting in an area that I kind of remembered from like the last time I went to that area, yeah. but then I'll spend more time on that trip exploring and finding new areas. So you kind of like you shoot an area and maybe cross that off the list. Hey, I, you know, I got a photo there, but then you start pursuing other areas nearby and it just kind of feeds on itself and you find all kinds of really cool things. Just, um, I, I moved, I moved you away from the one question I was going to ask you. You, you talked about the grad filter on those, on those sunrise type scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically like a three-stop filter, and then it's bringing the, the subject brightness range effectively right down. So that, that would make your Velvia 50 presumably quite an easy choice under those conditions. Yes. Yeah, you, if, you, if you bring it into the range, then you can use Velvia for that. So would the range be, what, five or six stops? Is that ballpark figure? Um, 50? So my, my general rule of thumb is that important shadows – um, really shouldn't be any darker than two stops, uh, darker than the meter reading on my Siconic spot meter. Hmm. And then highlight areas, anything more than positive two, that is going to be no real reliable detail there. Um, and I prefer even a little bit more of a cushion, uh, like maybe like negative 1.8 or Ooh, positive right. 1.8. Um, so that's my general rule of thumb. And there's certain areas that, you know, you're just not going to get any detail in because it's going to be really dark. But to your eye also, it's just incredibly dark. That's the range I kind of shoot for with slide film. Is that for both Velvia and Provia? Are they yeah, I, I kind of use the same numbers, but I know that Provia is going to be a lot more forgiving. Velvia, like it's, you know, it kind of is what it is. But Provia actually has kind of a bit of a smoother tone to it. And the shadows and the highlights are... Uh, a fair amount more forgiving than Velvia, which is one of the reasons why I do enjoy using that for kind of those sunrise sunset photos. Cause Velvia, it gets a little, little too contrasty sometimes. I know Simon, uh, just hold yourself in abatement there. Simon has got some questions about filters. <laughs> prob- I've, 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 I'm making copious notes of things. Here that I was going to bring you in. I, yeah, could, I could hear, yeah. I could hear you holding yourself <laughs> in suspenders. So, um, what, one last question on slide film, Ben. What, what this stuff is damn expensive at the moment, isn't it? And it's going up. It is. Um, yeah. Velvia is Velvia and, and Provia are Fuji, and of course we all have great 
um, hopes that Fuji will stick around, but really, they're not a film company. You know, they've got they do lots of film is just a bit of a sideline for them. How yeah. worried? How worried are you about your beloved stock? Um, what, what plans are you making? Are you are you hoarding? Are you um, have you got like millions of pounds worth of dollars worth <laughs> of uh, slide film stashed away? I, I do have a, a big freezer in my garage that does have quite a bit of film in it, but I'd say it's maybe maybe two years worth of film in there. Where it's it's a lot, but it's not like I'm like hoarding tons and tons of film. Um, but I will say that you know from the moment that I started shooting uh, large format slide film, people have always been talking about oh it's going to go away, it's going to mm-hmm. go away. Mm-hmm. It does seem to be hanging in there, um, and Fuji is definitely not showing any sort of um, dedication to really keeping it around and sort of fostering the community for that. Um, but Kodak is. So it'll be interesting to see um, with Kodak's new slide film how how that performs as a sheet film when that's eventually announced. Um, well, we but even if it all went away, I mean, I could shoot color negative and be okay, but I would, I would certainly miss shooting slides because there's something kind of magical about looking at that film on a light box with a loop and well, that's kind of being transported back to when you shot it. That That's one of the brilliant things about your videos is to, uh, you know, to see those reveals at the end and just to see this picture on your light box and think, Whoa, you know, and I'm, I, can you hear listeners shouting or what, or viewers rather shouting at you saying, Ben, that's great. What are you so disappointed? I, I would be, <laughs> I would be blown away to get the results that you said. Nah, not too sure how I feel about that one. I was going, what's wrong with you? It's brilliant. <laughs> but of it's, course, you, it, it be, is funny. Yeah, you've got to be picky and choosy because you're you're putting these things into portfolio box sets, and you, and you've got to have really high standards, I guess. But I'm shouting at you, saying, "Get over yourself, man! It's brilliant." <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's a matter of expectation versus reality you know there'll be times when i thought a photo in in my mind it was going to be a stronger photo but then when i see it you know sitting there staring back at me i'm like "Uh, it's just not quite what i had in mind but i mean the reason i started doing those film reveal videos is that i'm really fascinated by how the perception changes with time and how i'll be you know digging back through um, some old boxes of film and i I find a sheet of film i'm like why did I overlook this sheet of film before? This is a really cool photo and I'll add photos back to my website where, you know, I wasn't, you know, very thrilled with that photo at the time, but once I, you know, have some time and have some distance between me and going on that trip, then I kind of see it in a different light. So that's one of the reasons why I started filming those film reveal videos. So I can look back at it and see what my initial reaction was to that particular photo and then see how that kind of changes with time. Yeah, I think you do hint at that as well. Sometimes you make reference and say, well, actually, you know, I, 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 I like this more now than I did, you know, when I first looked at it. But that yeah. isn't, isn't that the beauty of film photography? Because it's, oh, for sure. You've just, if you let things, I mean, I make stuff in the darkroom and I just leave it in a pile there. And a, a few weeks later, I'll go back and have another look at it and see, well, is it really exciting me or not? You know, I know other folks sort of pin stuff up and, you know, kind of live with it for a while. But, you know, it's it's all part of that slowing down and I guess making making us work a bit harder for the end result. But before we go on to, on to that and your specific use of 8x10, Simon, uh, would you like to say something? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, got a, I've been making a, a, a few notes. Um, 
and uh, it's it's sort of my job on this show to ask questions um, for the uh, less able of our listeners, uh, which I am absolutely one of those people. Um, and I, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to you talk, talking about using slide film. I, I like to use slide film uh, myself, but not on large format because I'm still very much at the um, the beginner stage uh, and struggling to make things work on foam pan, let alone uh, <laughs> doing something on, on, on slide film. Um, but one day, one day, I, I hopefully I'll be there and it'll be great to see what Ectochrome is going to be like when it eventually gets released. Um, but um, I want to take you back probably about 10 minutes or so uh, when we were talking about reciprocity. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a reasonable idea about reciprocity, but I think there's a there's a good chance there'll be a lot of people, at least I hope there are going to be quite a few people listening to this podcast that are, are, are relatively new to film and certainly new to large format. Um, and I think it'd just be great just to just talk a little bit more about reciprocity, what it is and how and, and why it affects the way that you shoot. Yeah, we want the, we want the scientific formula from you, Ben. All right. None, none, none of this flim flam. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, uh, with most film stocks, uh, at a certain point when you're doing a relatively long exposure, it varies from film to film what they consider to be a long exposure. Um, the film doesn't respond as well with the long exposure compared to, but basically, it's not, you don't have a linear. Um, representation of you know a particular shutter speed at a particular aperture is going to equal the exact same exposure of an even longer you know shutter speed with an aperture that corresponds. So basically, what it means is that if you take a long exposure and you don't add extra time, your picture is going to turn out dark. And uh, it depends on the film. So in Velvia, if you have uh, if your meter reading says you have to do a four second long exposure. I know off the top of my head that you actually should do about a five second long exposure. And then by the time you get to about a 30 second long exposure, you really got to double it to about a minute. And there's some tables that you can find that will give you all this information. Uh, the film data sheets for each film you're working with, they'll, they'll usually have some degree of information for that. But what I found to be very useful is that there is an app um, called Reciprocity Timer. And I downloaded that app a long time ago. They have a collection of all the reciprocity uh, information and including some for certain films where like uh, some of the color negative film like Kodak Ektar, um, the data sheet will say, eh, experiment, figure it out yourself. <laughs> and uh, so I guess someone did at some point and they got the numbers for it. Uh, so I downloaded that app. Um, and what I did is I took all the information and I wrote it down in a little booklet. So I have a little chart that says, you know, if, uh, if I'm using Velvia and if my meter says to use a, you know, 20 second long exposure, this is how long I should actually should be using, you know? Um, and it's a really important thing to know, especially for a large format, because oftentimes you are going to be using some of those longer exposures and the worst films for reciprocity failure are usually black and white. Um, you can reach some situations where the meter says to use like a two minute exposure. You look at the reciprocity numbers and it says, yeah, you got to do 45 minutes or something absolutely insane like that. Um, and sometimes people will pick and choose their films according to which ones will behave best for long exposures. And that's one of the reasons why I really do enjoy using Provia in those times before sunrise, because 
you know, if my meter says to use a five minute long exposure, I know that I can actually just use a five minute long exposure and I don't have to add a bunch of extra time to it. So I'm a big fan of creating a, just a little notebook, even if you get all the information from downloading an app, but create a little notebook. That way you can have that with you in the field. You can quickly refer to it, uh, throw it in your pocket, you know, and then uh, do your exposures. Um, but the first first few frames I shot of 4x5 on Velvia 50 um, back in 2008 when I was learning to use it, those first few frames, my pictures were dark. And I didn't know what it was. And then later on, I found out it was a reciprocity failure. I didn't correct for it when I really should have. Hmm. Uh, that's that's a, a, a great answer for me there. Um, it's something that's popped into my head with long exposures, and this is partially film and partially uh, a filter uh, question and that's color shifts and also mm. things like um, Velvia uh, tends to have a bit of a, ma- a magenta cast to it would you agree with that I can never quite remember which one of those I've, I've heard people mention that for Velvia um, on Velvia 100 kind of no matter what you get a magenta cast but for Velvia 50 which is what I use I really haven't noticed any color shifts for long exposures um, I know that the um, the uh, data sheet for that film it mentions using like a color correction filter and stuff, but I I don't do that, and I've always had pretty pretty neutral color in Velvia fifty, and uh, Provia I've also had very very good results with with long exposure, so I've never had to do any correction as far as color cast, and I really haven't noticed anything um, they've even, that I've even had to correct for on the computer with Photoshop, so I, I haven't had any issues with that. You you do talk about I think you mentioned it a little while ago, but you certainly mentioned it on the podcast where you've got those shadow areas, you get the blue tinge with yeah. Velvia 50. Do, do you just go with that as a, uh, as a sort of fact, or do you tweak it, you know, de-blue de- it? <laughs> it really depends on the scene. There's some scenes where having a little bit of cool shadows mm. can actually be quite nice, but oftentimes the amount of blue that Velvia puts it in is a little overboard, so I'll kind of tame it and kind of bring it back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it really kind of depends on the scene, but there's I, I really do enjoy the, the warm and cool um, color contrast because it kind of builds depth in a scene. Um, but certainly too much blue can be a little bit distracting. And one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, sometimes you get these really interesting colors by shooting a slide film like Velvia 50. Um, and it can like look nice on the computer monitor, but then once you go to print it, you really got to dial that back and kind of bring it back to some degree of reality. Otherwise it just looks like a mistake more in print where on screen, it doesn't really look like a big, like it looks fine. So it's kind of weird the way that it is different between in print on paper versus versus on the screen and how much you have to correct for it. I guess you're not a fan of cross processing, but it wouldn't it be great just to do some large format cross processing? Have you have it, you ever done that? I have not. Um <laughs> it's it's an interesting technique, but uh but I've I've never gone down that road myself. Yeah. Simon, have you got any more questions, buddy? Um, well, it's it's all leading on to that that uh, that point about color shifts and things. Was mm. uh, something I've experienced with with um, neutral density filters is that they can sometimes introduce a color 
Um, tends to be like a, funnily enough, like a, a magenta or a purple. I'm just wondering if that's something that you've come across. And uh, maybe you're just using crap filters. Well, <laughs> I almost, I almost feel uh, hesitant to say what kind of filter that I am using because it's a good one. <laughs> but um, so I'm not going to say it. Uh, but I've, I've, I'm just wondering if you've, if you had that uh, issue yourself. So the I don't really use any solid ND filters because usually my exposures are kind of too long as it is. Yeah. Um, so the, usually the filters I'm using are like the grad filters, and the ones I use from Lee, I've never noticed any any weird color shifts in the sky or anything along those lines. So I found that the the Lee grads I use are incredibly neutral. Um, but I know that some of like the really dark solid ND filters. It's a tough thing to do to make a filter that is completely neutral. So I have heard that some of those filters might go, you know, blue or magenta or green, depending on the filter. But I really haven't worked with those too much. I'd be I'd be too afraid that if I used one of those, my exposures would be so long that yeah. the camera's just going to shake in the wind and it's all going to be a blurry photo anyways. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's probably largely a sign that I'm I'm still new, new to large formats because, you know, I'm, I'll be, might be shooting an F, F11 or something like that on a, on a, on a film camera or a digital camera. Um, whereas, of course, you know, well, that's, that's the point. I'm in the UK, so there, there isn't, there aren't going to be that many times when shooting an F22 or, or smaller uh, in the UK where you're going to actually really need a, a, a neutral density filter to help you with your uh, exposure, I guess. So it's, yeah. it's probably not going to be something that's going to happen too often. But what, what I do, I'm, I'm really curious to know about how you attach your filters. And the reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because the large, I've got several large format lenses. The, the majority of them are classic lenses. I mean, they're 60, 70 years old, most of them, and, and they've got a couple that are well over 100 years old. And there's no filter thread on them. And I'm thinking, well, I've heard people talk about gel filters and stuff like that, but I, I've, I've yet to actually look into it because of what type of methods I can actually use and what kind of filters go onto these things. I mean, is there any advice that you can give on attaching filters to these non-standard devices? You know, that's not something I've had uh, to work with at all. All the, the lenses I have, they're, they're fairly modern lenses um, from, you know, Nikon, Fuji. Um, and for those ones, I have filter threads. Um, what I do have, though, is uh, several of my larger lenses. They're, they're a 95 millimeter thread size, which is, which is pretty crazy. Uh, I have a filter holder from Lee that kind of friction fits over the outside of the lens barrel because uh, it's designed for lenses like that. So that's how I'm able to use the the leaf filters on there. But maybe there's some other sort of filter holder out there that can also, you know, friction fit over the outside of the lenses or some adapters that can go on there or something. But that's definitely not something I've had to, that's not a challenge I've had to work with for, for the stuff that I have. Okay. Um, Andrew, have you got any thoughts on, on my weird lenses and how I can put filters to them? Um. Well, for years, I just held the filter in front of the lens, <laughs> and that worked just fine. Well, yeah. But maybe not the, the graduate. If I'm, if I'm out in the field with my Toyo 45A, which I think Ben Horn had. I had a 45A2, oh, so it was basically the same camera with a couple tweaks to it. Yeah, I don't know what the tweaks were, but uh, uh, did, it, did, did the A2 have a the front bed does that drop down is that is that it A2? did i the a2 also had the do you have the rotating 
back. Going back on yours. Yeah, cause I think mine must be a later version of the 45A. Okay. We, we, we've just sidelined Simon with this question, but we'll come back to it, Simon. Don't <laughs> no, worry. no, that's okay. And I, I just, I mean, the final point before I hand back over to you, Andrew, is yep. uh, a lot of the conversation earlier, you were talking quite in depth about um, the methods you're using to meter. And uh, and I'm, yep. I'm, I just want to... Um, say to the, the the people that are maybe struggling to keep up with that that we I think we will come back to talk about metering very very specifically perhaps in a, in a in a future episode because there's so much that we we want to talk about Ben uh, talk to Ben about um, I don't want to you know it's a huge subject uh, how we meter and if we start talking about zone systems and, and stuff like that so uh, we'll put that a little bit to one side and I don't want you to I don't want it to like um, slow your flow, if you like, with the conversation. So, uh, but I just wanted to put it out there. Yeah, and also, you know, listeners, you can chat about some of this stuff in the in the large format photography podcast. What a mouthful! Facebook group. So, you know, they're they're great discussions for the Facebook group as well. Ben, on a we we had an email which I'd like to throw in at this point because it it nearly touches on. Uh, what Simon was talking about, but actually it's it's related. It's, t- it's actually talking about lens lens hoods. And the gentleman James Thorpe has written in. He said, "Dear large format gents, that must be us. <laughs> At some point, I'd like to hear your thoughts on large format lens hoods. I always use a hood on my thirty-five millimeter and medium format cameras, not just for protection, but most times I do see it helps with contrast." I'm just dipping my toe into large format and I've already got too many camera lens options than is sensible. He says he's got Graflex, RB's Speed Graphics, Linhoff Technica. He's gone all in, hasn't he? Plus sundry lenses, some with shutters, some only barrel. There you go, Simon. I'm just wondering if there's a one-size-fits-all lens hood option. Well, this is similar, isn't it, to what you're asking with your uh with, with your question simon either homemade or store-bought the last thing i want to do right now is start yet another collection of specialized photography accessories why not that's all the fun you we, you've got to have all these things because otherwise you're not a proper photographer james you've got to have lots of different gadgets isn't that right ben yeah yeah you gotta have so much stuff you can't carry it all <laughs> that's the only way to do it yeah or you have to turn into alan brockman so you can carry fridges <laughs> on your back yeah. Uh, so do so. Do you use lens hoods? Um, yeah, I do. I have. Uh, I don't use it for all my lenses, but I do have the. It's the the Lee um, sort of the collapsible wide angle lens hood. I forget exactly what they call it, but it's the one that kind of uh, folds down really small. Has kind of the bellows on it. Uh, it's a really big lens hood, so it's really well matched for eight by ten. But if you're to put that onto like a four by five or some sort of lens that has a relatively small diameter on it, it would be bigger than the camera itself. Um, <laughs> but I, I do use that um, most of the time when I can. If, if I basically I don't want any sun to hit the front element, hmm. um, so if I can use the hood and if that accomplishes it, that's great. Um, but if I'm using a really small lens or if I'm packing really light, I don't have it with me usually all I'll do is I'll just kind of hold the dark slide up so that casts shadow onto the, uh, the front element of the lens. And you can have like the dark slide held, you know, you know, three feet above the lens and off to the side, you know, just so long as, you know, obviously it's not in the shot. Um, but that's, that's one of the things I'll do. I, I bought the lens hood uh, after going on a trip one time where 
I had the camera perched on the edge of a cliff. It was about a 3,000 foot drop. Nothing you you say surprises me about what you do. (laughs) Yeah, it's always a cliff involved. (laughs) Um, But I was trying to shoot this, this photo at sunrise and my camera wasn't, it was kind of pointed towards the sun, but I was aiming more downward where, you know, the sun's not in the frame at all. And I had to hold up, I think I, I held up my hat to kind of make it so that the direct sunlight didn't reach the front element because otherwise it would just flare up the lens. But I had to reach out over the edge of the cliff and then also juggle like a stopwatch and the cable release and all that. And that was kind of a, a never again kind of moment. So I bought the Lee Hood um, and I've been really, really happy with it. But it is a really big hood. So Do they, ma- do they make them for four or five um, they cameras. make a less wide angle one, which is smaller, mm-hmm. but the question is if it's going to work well or if it's going to kind of get in the way of the shots. And that's the other thing too, when when you use the hoods like that, you have to stop your lens down all the way and kind of move the hood in and out to make sure it's not creeping into view um, because you can't tell when you're looking through the lens wide open. And the, the first trip I went on with the hood, I chopped off like the top of every single shot and I didn't even know it until I uh, until I got home and got the film back. So you have to be really careful with it because it's really easy for that hood to get in the way. But they do make a smaller one as well. It's more squarish, I believe. The one I have is kind of a long, skinny rectangle, kind of like a matte box for a cinema camera. Okay. I certainly use that technique of holding the dark slide up more often than not is what I do. Yeah, and that, that works really well. It does. And I, the, the way I judge it is if I, if I can just see shadow falling over the lens – holding it as far away as possible where I think it's not going <laughs> to clearly not yeah. going to be in the shot. But if it's just stopping that direct light hitting that front element is what I'm looking for. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was going to say something else about lens hoods. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll say something and that's, go on, um, then, we just, we just got another, another item to my list of things that can go wrong with a photograph. Uh, th- th- <laughs> thanks for that, Ben. I've, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to add them to the list. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, I know what I was going to say. You can check. You were talking about stopping it, uh, being able to see whether the lens hood was impinging on 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 the image, and we we touched on this. I think in either episode one or episode two. I think Simon was quizzing me over image circle or some such thing, and I talked about um, those little cutouts in the corner of. Not every camera has them, but uh, you know what I'm talking about, Ben. And you can, yeah. Am I thinking I you exactly can you can about. you can look through those and peer up at the edge of your lens and if you can ah, see i've never tried that i've heard about that but i've never tried that they're also probably there to let air out i guess but uh, yeah um my understanding was uh, now i'm doubting myself now somebody message in and tell tell me that i'm not going mad that you do look through those little gaps in the corner to see if you put your head at an angle and look up and you can see if there's anything impinging they were they were talking about this on the uh, homemade camera um, podcast uh, and this is a, a historic episode is going back months and months and I'm just working my way okay. through their podcast at the moment but they did mention that and I think I mean the, the, what you came up with there um, last time or what you just, just said there um, I, th- I think they had another reason for it as well which was just as just as plausible but I think there's another reason and they didn't talk about letting air out through the bellows. I'm sure there's uh, it can it can manage that without those uh, those I gaps. Think, I think so. Um, yeah. But yeah, I get, I've got the sticky feeling there is another reason why they're there, other than just to see if the um, the image circle is actually covering those corners. 
You're probably right. Ben, you have a lot of time when you're not taking pictures, and I th- you alluded to this in a video, or maybe it was in a in in the comments under one of your video posts, and you talked about trying to fill your time up in some kind of almost spiritual or meditative or contemplative way. Um, I actually suggest you started doing sketches or writing thoughts in a notebook. Um, you did tell me at the time it was a good idea, but I, I, I actually I did I, that on my I, on my last spring backpacking trip. I, I did, did bring a notebook along. So, have, so have you started dealing with those in between moments? Yeah, and I, I think that's the sort of thing where there are certain trips where that is more important. Certain trips where it's not quite as important. Um, it's really the backpacking trips, the trips where I am off in the middle of nowhere, um, where it's nice in order to find some way to kind of get out of your own head for a little bit and just to kind of relax and kind of enjoy your surroundings. Um, cause I think that we're, we're, we always get so caught up with everything kind of day to day life that once you kind of get off there and, and, you're the only one out there. You kind of get in your own head a little bit from time to time. So, um, but yeah, when I went on my last uh, backpacking trip, I did, and this was uh, last spring, I did bring along a uh, a notebook and kind of kept a journal, put some sketches in there, and and that was really nice because it kind of allowed me to, I think, better enjoy the experience of being out there and kind of the whole wilderness experience, um, and it kind of puts a little bit of a different perspective on things. And uh, I'll be going on a, a backpacking trip again this spring. And I have another thing that's going to help out. It's a, a hammock. So I think the hammock will be a, a very nice addition to my, my backpacking kit. Just sit there, sitting there in the hammock and uh, sketch and, and kind of enjoy some of the downtime in that, that, in that sense. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. I mean, that leads me on to the, the kind of obvious question, really. I, I mean, m- most times you're, going back to your forerunner or the campsite in the evenings. But I have seen you go on these trips. There was also your buddy, Alan Brockman did a, a mega trip into like the wilderness with his mate. And yeah, yeah Justin and, Lowry says the, uh, the, that was just, the guy went with. Yeah. And he, and I got the sense that he started to go a bit crazy, but he, there, he had a buddy with him. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you handle, I mean, like you, you do allude to it. You say, you know, when you haven't got a phone signal, I think you, you miss talking to your wife and stuff, which is, is clearly um clearly an issue but you know how do, how do you deal with those long trips and what's the longest um trip you've been on what sort of dangers do you face so just talk a little bit about those longer backpacking trips and what it does to your head and and also the practicalities around those um well i think some of one of the reasons why those trips can sometimes be a bit difficult and this is something that i had um, kind of let Alan know in advance before he went on his his trip is that um, when you're down in a canyon, uh, it can feel a little imprisoning sometimes. Mm. And you can be in an absolutely beautiful area, place you want to be, but when you're constantly surrounded by the walls of the canyon, it kind of gets in your head a little bit. So um, I always try to set up a camp in areas where it's kind of a little bit more wide open, uh, and that helps out. Uh, but I think just not being able to see the full progress of the sun, um, kind of losing sense of time. Um, there's something kind of deep in you that kind of some biological thing from the past telling you, you know, this is not a good place to be, which is not really the feeling that you want to have when you're there for photography and it's a place that you want to be. 
Um, but uh, I, I have a new device now. It's a, a two-way satellite messenger, uh, which I think is also going to help a little bit when going on the, the solo trips where I'm backpacking off in the middle of nowhere, where basically I can send and receive text messages via satellite with my wife and have a little bit more of that, that connection to home, which is, which is pretty nice. Um, as far as like the dangers and stuff out there, uh, basically the biggest things are things that you can kind of work around, you know, dehydration, you know, that's, that's an easy one to work around. Uh, just have plenty of water and drink plenty of it. The other thing is, uh, people that have mechanical injuries from like jumping from a rock down somewhere or something along those lines. Well, you, you've got to take a pen knife with you so you can saw your own arm off, haven't you? When you get oh, of stuck. course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's stuff like that where I'm pretty sure that, you know, the, the person that was kind of in that situation, there probably was sort of some sort of little voice in the back of their head kind of before they got to the point where their arm was crushed that, you know, maybe this isn't the right place to be. Maybe this isn't the smartest thing to be doing. So I've always been a big fan of listening to that voice in the back of your head. And if it's telling you don't go somewhere, don't do something, I think it's easiest enough just to kind of listen to that voice. Um, And there's been trips in the past where I've gone on and there was nothing about the area that I was going to that should have been in any way bad. It was, it was a beautiful place I was going to, but there's a, just this voice in the back of my head saying, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So I turned around and I, I went back because I'd rather listen to that voice than you know regret it for one reason or another. But I think that satellite messenger is, is going to be a, a really good thing because it does allow you to have that connection to home. And also, if something does happen, there's ways of, of, of getting help and stuff. But ultimately, I'm not going that dramatically far off the beaten path i do run into other people in some of these places um but uh in in the longest uh i've gone uh maybe like four days or so on a backpacking trip at a certain point i I shoot all the film i have and then i'm like all right i guess i gotta go back to my truck and and figure out something else to do yeah so you you mentioned I, was, I, I don't know whether it was your last trip, maybe fall last year, when you set that little camera up hoping to catch mountain lions because you'd yes. seen and you caught nothing more dangerous than a rabbit or a hare, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a bird. <laughs> and I think I think you were just you were just you you just wanted people to come back and watch another episode in case, <laughs> in case they saw a mountain lion, and I was sorely sorely disappointed because I think you you. I've certainly seen you point at some footprints on the floor, unless you've got, maybe you've got a footprint on a stick and you just <laughs> stamp it around in the mud. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I've definitely seen them out there. They're, they're very elusive animals. They're um, I, I, I'm pretty fascinated by them because they're the top predator um, in, in those parts. And we also have them in our local mountains. Um, they are incredibly elusive. They typically avoid people. Uh, but you'll see their their tracks, and they're the size of a very very large dog. Um, but I've always just been fascinated by the the wildlife that's out there, the the stuff that you you never really do see. So I am hopeful that at some point I will catch one of them on the the game cam overnight. Um, but I, I think the the first time I saw their tracks, it was uh, it was quite a few years ago. I was uh, setting up for a particular photo and kind of just waiting for the light to be pretty decent down in one of these canyons. And as I normally do, I'll set up the camera. I'll just kind of leave it there. I'll just wander around a little bit. 
And uh, I wandered maybe about you know, like 300 feet away and I see some really fresh tracks in the sand there. I'm like, okay, <laughs> now we know that they're somewhere nearby, but uh, yeah, I would, I love to catch them on camera. At some I, point. Think, I, I think, think they're I've, fascinating. Yeah, do, do you think they'll stand still long enough for you to get your Arca Swiss out? Uh, I would probably have other thoughts going through my mind <laughs> if I did come face to face with a, a giant, giant cat on the trail. <laughs> They're kind of freaky. <laughs> so I, I've got a vision of you running around with a speed graphic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just get, carry a press camera with me just in case, just yeah. in case. The, the other, I was talking to Simon before, um, before you joined us, Ben, and 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 I know some of those areas you you walk up, they're called washers, and they're called washers because when there's been heavy rainfall, maybe the day before or up in the hills, they flood. And yes, you have one. I think you you have one eye on the weather as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the, the bigger threats out there um, because you're you're walking through a, a drainage ditch, and mm. if there's any big rain upstream. This is especially uh, during the summer months when they have these monsoonal storms that come through. It can be perfectly sunny where you are. You can't even see a cloud in the sky, but somewhere upstream, there could be a, a thunderstorm rolling through, dropping a ton of rain. And then you can have this wall of water that comes down. So you have to, you know, use, use discretion. And, and it's also when I go on the backpacking trips, when you're you know hiking through these canyons, I'll go there during the time of year when there's really no chance of rain and there's, you know, no rain at all in the forecast. And have you met any weirdos who you felt really vulnerable to have bumped into? Uh, weirdos, Half yes. Brockman. <laughs> uh, he uh, definitely not a weirdo. Um, but I, I have run into some some odd characters. No one I've ever felt threatened by. That's good. Um, but uh, Alan, Alan Brock, I've only been threatened by in terms of push-up contests, but uh, yes, not in you, terms I of you do that. You you yeah. it, you made it look like you won, but you didn't, did you? I would like to think that I won, um, mm. but uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, video doesn't lie though. I'm pretty sure if you if you watch that clip, I'm pretty sure I'm still doing push-ups yeah. on that tarmac at the airport. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, who would be your biggest influence, Ben, when it comes to the type of photography that you do? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I really do enjoy the work of uh, Charles Kramer. Um, really, really beautiful work. Um, in terms of like looking for kind of like those smaller details and trees and the way light falls on things. And, um, I really do, really do enjoy his work. Um, I, I don't spend a lot of time kind of pursuing the work of other photographers, but there's some that I've, you know, kind of gravitated towards. I'd say also beyond, um, beyond that, you know, the, the work of, of a lot of my peers were, especially if it's a trip where, you know, I'm there with other photographers and I, I see some photo that they shot and I realized, Hey, I walked past that scene. I did not even think to shoot that. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. What happens if you have several photographers in the same area and you kind of see what each person's unique vision is for that scene. So I'd also say just a lot of my peers in, in terms of the stuff that they produce from some of the locations that, that I really do enjoy going to. Um, but that's, that's, that's mostly it. I've got a couple of books by Bruce Barnbaum and Bruce was, he, he writes that he first photographed in slot canyons, Antelope Canyon. That's the famous one, I think, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know where that is. Is that in the same sort of area where you go? 
Antwerp. It's it's a, a bit east of there, maybe a few hours east okay. of a lot of the places. I and go he to. said when he went there in the eighties, he started making these largely black and white images, and nobody nobody was really doing it then. And um, you know now they have bus tours to take yeah. you to Antelope Canyon. Um, uh, but I, I wondered if you were familiar with Bruce's work and particularly the early work he did in those canyons. Uh, I, I'm not, but also I'm I'm I haven't really been very good at kind of keeping up with all the, you know, all the these these people that have done such awesome work. I, I haven't really spent a lot of time kind of researching it. I may have seen it at some point, but I haven't really sort of immersed myself in that world. I think it can be a, can be a double edged sword because you know you you can be look at so many different people's work. You are you can either then sub, subliminally soak up bits of it. Or you can just be put off. So you know, there's got to be some the the fact that you've got your own vision and and you're not being drawn to necessarily to the work of others. Um, maybe helps you with your um, with, with your own vision, Ben. Yeah, I was I was actually really early on. I was very resistant to you know looking at the work of other photographers and kind mm-hmm. of you know researching all these these people who've had these you know magnificent careers and taking all this beautiful work because. I really didn't want it to to influence me in one way or another, um, but now I, I think I've gotten to the point where I'm I'm pretty confident in the stuff that I'm doing. Where now I can look at the work from other people and you know take inspiration from that, but without fear of myself just wanting to like you know replicate what they've done. Um, so I think it's part of just kind of a, a progression of kind of becoming more familiar with who you are as a photographer, what type of stuff you like to do. And then at some point, just seeing it as as inspiration. Uh, ben uh, and Andrew, if I, if I can just interject, so I've, I'm just on uh, Ben's uh, BenHorn.com on uh, mm-hmm. looking at the Canyon Light um, Gallery. Uh, so I thought, oh, let's have a look at these Canyon shots. And I've just gone to uh, a photograph here called Grand Corridor in the Zion National Park at Utah. Yeah, and I've got to say the the way that you've captured the water. Uh, in that canyon, I mean, it, we've mm. all seen um, <laughs> long exposure uh, shots of streams and things like this, but I've never seen I've never seen it quite like that before. It, it's just I'm just looking at it. It's like I, it's just sucking me in. And I've also mm. look I'm looking at it as well. There's a there's almost like a uh, an optical illusion going going on there because it looks like the water should be flowing towards the camera, but it's it's flowing away from the camera down into the into the cavern. And it's uh, I just want to say it's absolutely amazing photograph, Ben. It is. Thanks. Yeah, that's that was on uh, Kodak Ektar. Um, and I, I think that's what's kind of responsible for the the way that some of the highlights work, and and also there's a lot of natural green tones kind of in that water. Um, but yeah, that, that's a photo I took that one pretty early on. I think that was back in like 2010, 2011. Um, See, cool if, I, if I'd have taken that, I think I'd have just said, "Well, I can't, I can't do anything any better." <laughs> Cup and go home. And leave yeah. alone. <laughs> <laughs> so you. Um, there's some observations after listening to and watching your videos over the years, Ben. Um, there's some a few things you're obsessed by, shall we say? Yeah. And I th- and I think I think it's one of the reasons why you well you don't to say you struggle in Death Valley is being is is not true because you produce some lovely work, but sometimes you can have a hard time there and for sure and you feel the need to run off to Zion to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to get back to that beloved reflected light because in the desert you've got these big if you get the big blue skies 
and wind like you had earlier this year, I think it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, you struggle. And um, what what you're looking for in these canyons is the light bouncing off other surfaces, isn't it? And, and then just pick, getting that very difficult to quantify. But you can see it in your pictures, that reflected light. And, that, and, and that's what you love, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a very dimensional kind of light. Um, it's very well suited for... Um, for film, but for large format in particular. Um, and it's really ideal for, for color photography. And, and you're, you're right that Death Valley, it can be a struggle at times because it really is the sort of thing where you have, you know, sunrise and sunset. I mean, those are, those are your main things to shoot unless you can find some canyons or of, of which there are some. Um, but you're really dependent on all the other factors, the clouds and everything else and having wind that cooperates. But uh, a, a place like Zion, when you're in some of these canyons, um, you'll have, so long as you have a, a sunny, sunny day with, you know, not even a single cloud in the sky, you'll have light that bounces off some of these huge, you know, multi-thousand foot sandstone walls or like this really kind of orangey sort of color. And that reflects that light down into the shadows. Um, and that's part of the light source is coming from the light bouncing off those cliffs, but also part of it comes from the blue sky. So you have a warm and cool light that depending on which angle your subject is located at, you'll get a little blue on one side, a little bit orange on the other. And it really builds an enormous sense of depth. And it also really lends itself to photographing some of the smaller scenes. It's a very painterly light. It's a very sort of inviting light. And there'll be times when I'm just walking along through one of these harsh washes and you know, the, the, the light's kind of glaring up off of the rocks and the sand and everything. Then you step into this nice, cool shade, and then everything's just kind of immersed in this reflected light. And everything looks beautiful. Everything looks amazing. Um, there was a, a scene uh, on, it was when I was on my winter trip um, uh, this past January. There was a scene I was trying to photograph. I never could quite find a composition of it, but it was these three rocks in the river, and I knew that in the afternoon, they'd have a nice reflection of the sandstone cliffs on the surface of the water, and then some nice kind of warm reflected light in the foreground. And I, I set up my camera the day, or it wasn't the day before, but I, I set up my camera like uh, maybe an hour or two before I knew that scene was going to be cast in the shadow with this nice warm reflected light. And I was struggling to try to find this composition on that scene, and I couldn't quite find anything. And eventually, the sun's moving, the sun's moving. And then the foreground kind of falls in the shade. And then you can see this warm light kind of reflecting off the water. And it was actually underneath my gr- underneath the dark cloth, looking at the ground glass when it happened. <laughs> and it was so cool to see that scene be transformed from this harsh light to this beautiful reflected light. It looked like magic, just watching it just transition like that. And even though I wasn't able to find a photo or a composition for that particular scene and when I wasn't able to take a photo, just seeing it transition in light like that was, was really cool, especially when I was underneath the dark cloth. So it's a very magical light. You can shoot pretty much all day long. And also the light changes so much as the sun moves. So you can walk along a wash, find some really cool looking subjects, walk back, you know, the same wash, maybe an hour later, and it'll be completely different. So it's just really, really rewarding to work with, especially with large format. Um, if you, if you're you in a work on the smaller scenes, if you're in a new area and you know, you've got, you know, you're going to be looking for this 
reflected light. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're on a scouting trip, are, are you, uh, you know, how, how do you how do you get yourself in the right place at the right time? I know mean, sometimes you say, oh, it's going to be great later on in the day. How do you know that? Is it just because you know where the sun's going to be and you've got a compass? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of it is or experience. Um, it, it's really just a matter of just kind of looking at the sky. I'm like, ah, right, the sun's going to be over here. And, and then you kind of uh, figure out, you know, oh, this area, this, this wall is going to get hit with light in the, the morning. Then it's going to reflect over here. So you have to kind of just look around and, and you get a feel for it based on the orientation of everything's facing. But, you know, a lot of it is also a matter of just getting out there and wandering around because it's a thing. It's, it's something that's really hard to predict and part of to know exactly how it's going to look so you just got to get out there you got to scramble around um and and then that's how i kind of find the cool stuff just happen to be in the right place at the right time for for the most part um but yeah it's it's definitely a a very very beautiful light to work with when you're on your scouting trips have you always got either your arca swiss or your intrepid eight by ten with you or you sometimes camera less it my it kind of depends on on where I'm going. Um, if I'm at a location where I'm going to be quite a ways away from my uh, vehicle, I'll I'll haul the camera with me uh, to wherever I'm going. But then I might just drop the pack and then just kind of you know wander around and, and try to find something interesting. Um, if I'm in a place where I can be fairly close to where I'm parked, like, w- which is true for Zion, um, I can always get back to my truck pretty fast. Hmm. Uh, I'll just leave the camera behind and I'll just go lightweight pack. That way I can cover a lot of ground, scramble around a lot and see if I can find something interesting. But with something like reflected light, it's on a schedule. So if I happen to find something that looks really beautiful and it's, you know, two seventeen in the afternoon, hmm. I know that. The following day, I'm going to have the exact same light, exact yeah. same place, so yeah, long as sure. the weather is the same. So you have to kind of build this framework of remembering certain subjects, um, knowing kind of when they look pretty good, and then come up with a plan as far as how to go about and shoot them. And my goal is usually to shoot at least one subject a day. It doesn't always happen, but it's that's my goal. And, of course, it's that first shot of the trip which you're also obsessed by. It seems oh, like you, sure. you can't relax until it doesn't, you could have just shot a pile of garbage. As long as you've made an exposure, <laughs> I think you're happy. That is, so. that is complete truth right there. there there's something about it. I don't, I don't know what it is, but uh, when you, when I, when I go on these trips and when I make that first exposure, it feels like the pressure is off. Now I can just kind of go off and explore and find things. And Oftentimes the first photo actually ends up being pretty decent, but there's, there's been times when it was a scene that I didn't think would be all that great, but even so just taking that, that first exposure and just putting that dark slide back in, um, it just feels really good. Kind of brings out a different sort of mentality. Um, and there's been times on the trips where it's, you know, three, four five days into the trip. I still haven't taken the first photo and I start to panic a little bit. I'm like, what's, what's going on here? Something's, something's not right with this so yeah the first shot it that it definitely has a has a big impact and then you go back to the same locations over and over again and it you know i live i live in a part of the uk where and i probably do most of my it's fairly flat it's a bit like um 
It's a bit like living in in the Netherlands, you know, like reclaimed land and lots mm-hmm. of drainage ditches, big open skies. And it's a bit like living here. I, 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 the way I look at it, it's a bit like being on a, a on a continuous photo trip because I I'm so familiar with the landscape and I, and, and what I'm leading to is your familiarity with these places that you go to. Um, that, that I can just watch the light and I can go, when I see the light, I get a sense of what it's going to be like. I think, right, I can go there and I know I'm going to get something different. Even though I've been there a million times, I, I can just sense there's something great going to be happening because of the light and because of my familiarity. Now I've been to, um, uh, some of the, close to some of the places out in, in Utah where you've been, I've been to death Valley, but in August, you know, for goodness yeah. sake. And, um, uh, the, the uh, Archers National Park, but I mean, I I was just there for the day, you see, and I think this is the problem. You know, you go there for the day, and you're just trying to grab those shots. You're not immersed in the landscape, and is is that why you go back to these places time and time again, so you can get that familiarity, that knowledge, that feel for the landscape, that uh, to get immersed in it. Oh, for sure. Um, it, it really is a matter of, you know, I, I find that if if I'm going to a, a new location, you know, I might be able to to get a couple photos. But if I do, they're usually going to be kind of more straightforward scenes um, and maybe something where I might even end up kind of resenting that photo a little bit uh, later down the line because it was almost it was it was too easy. It was kind of the gimme shot. Um, but if yeah. I find that if I kind of spend a lot of time revisiting a location, then you kind of see that condition, that location in all kinds of different conditions. And then you kind of, you learn what truly is special, what truly is unique. Cause I think with landscape photography, you know, we're trying to capture fleeting moments in one way or another. It could be on a small scale, could be on a big scale, but I think it's when you have that context of revisiting a location that, you not only get to know that location really well, but you get to recognize when conditions are are unique, which helps to give me a bit more of a sense of direction where I'll, I'll walk along and I'll see something kind of interesting. I'll be like, you know, I've walked along this path so many different times, but this is the first time I've seen this. So it really kind of uh, helps to give me a sense of perspective and, and direct me a bit as a photographer to, to subjects that maybe other people might walk right past and, and not even notice. So I, I think it's a really valuable part of the, of the process of kind of getting to know a, a location and finding subjects. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you all the way there. The uh, you, Ben, you're not really drawn to grand scenes. I don't think you, wh- whether you're photographing um, uh, frozen, s- frozen sand, you know, fro- leaves trapped in water or, cracks in rocks or whether you're photing, photographing cottonwood trees against varnish, what do they call it? Desert varnish. Desert varnish. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even your big, you know, your big landscape pictures are small vignettes in a way, aren't they? And, and, and I see you get, you get drawn to these, these sort of detail shots, even, even though, okay, it can still be the large wall of a, of a side of a mountain, but they're not sweeping landscapes with, you know, in the sort of traditional sense, like Vance Adamsy, you, you seem to be very drawn to those patterns and details, and you know, from from the trees down to the small repetition on the ground. Something is that, is that a fair observation? Oh, for sure. And, and actually, I think part of that is because, in some ways, I think shooting the grand landscapes is more difficult because you're 
completely reliant on having absolutely unique conditions. Mm. And oftentimes there are locations that you've seen many people photograph before. And when you show up, you know, it's going to be blue skies with maybe yep. two clouds that aren't even all that good looking clouds. Yep. Then you see a photo that someone else has taken from there and they have, you know, <laughs> a thunderstorm. There's like 15 <laughs> rainbows. There's unicorns. There's all kinds of stuff there. And they happen to be there at the right place at the right time. And chances are from these grand landscapes, you're going to see it on more of an average day. Um, so it's, it's, you really have to have really unique conditions. And I've, I've taken some kind of grand landscape sort of scenes if I do happen to have those sort of conditions. But I find it's easier for me to kind of slow down and look for those, those smaller scenes because they're, they're actually a lot easier to work with. You don't have that window of, you know, you have 20 seconds to take this photo before the light goes away. You have a, a much larger window, which I think lends itself to the process of working with large format where you can kind of take your time and enjoy the process more. And it's also nice to have photos that aren't necessarily the same general photo that everyone else has in their portfolio. It kind of helps to, I think, uh, you know, differentiate you a little bit from, from other, other people's portfolios. Um, I just, I just enjoy the process of looking for the, the smaller scenes a bit more. Uh, ben, I'd, I'd like to expand a little bit on that one um, because several times now you've you've mentioned how certain scenes and you talked about Death Valley uh, in particular uh, suiting large format photography, and I'm I'm just wondering about what the process is in your mind where you decide well that makes a good large format shot and you know so and, and why I mean ultimately I'm saying you know what's the point of using a large format camera over some other type of uh, conventional camera, should we say, whether it be a smaller format, whether it be digital, whatever. So, what what what's the draw apart from like the, you know, it's it's a it's a slow way of doing things, and you can be more contemplative and and so on. But in terms of the actual image that you can create, what is it that's unique about large format? I just like the way that it captures the the really fine details, um, and you know, being able to use the the movements to you know, get the the ground at, at your feet and focus all the way up to the mountains in the background. And to do that with relative ease, I mean, you could take the same photo with any other format, really. Um, but I, I pretty much only do shoot with large format. So I'm just only really attracted to the subjects that I think I can kind of work with for that. Um, but I mean, part of it's about the process. Uh, part of it's about, for me at least, working with large format, I think is easier than if I was working with digital um, because I can do a lot in camera that would otherwise take a lot of like blending multiple exposures and focus bracketing and, and all that sort of stuff that um, that you can do on digital to give a very similar effect. But I just like the fact that the, the large format kind of simplifies the process. So it's, it's definitely a process oriented thing along with some of the technical advantages. But you, you can really shoot these photos with any camera, really. It's just what I use it for. Well, the, the, the reason why I'm, I'm – I almost feel like um, you, um, there's there's something more to be said there. Um, I mean, I've, I've watched a few of your, your videos, and when we've been chatting before, I've, I've, I've mentioned that when I first got into large-format photography, I, I went onto YouTube and I immediately found your channel because uh, – and. And I think I was just looking for things like camera movements and things like that. And uh, yeah, but so I was trying to work out 
yeah, what to do with that front standard, what to do with the rear standard, and uh, when when to tilt, when not to tilt, and you know, your 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 videos were very very good at explaining about how you can manipulate the depth of field, um, and there's also. Um, and I think especially in the Death Valley shots, you were explaining why you might use uh, some of the rear movements. And and I think there was somewhere you you, you, was at, you were able to work with the ground uh, that was in front of you, which was quite interesting. The way that you were able to um, bring that into focus, but also with the fact that you could actually um, balance the scene so you actually get more detail um, as it goes away from you before it, before it, it dissolves into, into the mountains in a way that I think it would have been pretty much impossible to do with uh, a smaller format camera. I don't know if you know which which shots I'm talking about. I think about where you got like the lake beds. It's, yeah, so the salt flats and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and what that was is that's a matter of um, usually when people are shooting digital, the um, it's really common for people to use a wide angle lens and get really low to the ground. Um, and this will exaggerate the foreground. So it enlarges the foreground in relation to the background. But when you do this, you kind of squish the middle ground. So you end up, you don't have as much flow from the foreground through the mid ground, all the way to the background. Um, it's a really cool effect, but I have always enjoyed having the camera more at eye level. Um, and that way you don't squish that mid ground. You have, you know, a good foreground, mid ground, and background. Uh, but then to emphasize the foreground, you can use rear camera movements where by tilting the, the rear standard of the camera, uh, you can basically enlarge that foreground, which is gives that, is that the perception tilting it to toward, Is it tilting it towards you or away from you? I can never remember. Uh, so is. that would be tilting it a, a, a the top would go towards you. I'm yes. thinking about it here because the top is the bottom and you're enlarging. Yeah. So the, the yes. top needs to come <laughs> towards your face. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you also have to, to refocus the front and, and yep. readjust the, the tilt of the front and all that to, to correspond to it. Um, and some cameras make this easier than others, depending on which access you're able to, like I, I had a, 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 I had an ebony camera before and it had a, a axial real, rear tilt where you can tilt it on the center axis. Uh, that was really easy for doing that with my uh, Arca Swiss and with my Intrepid, they they tilt from the base. Yeah. So it throws off the focus a bit more. Yeah. And then there's some that will do asymmetrical rear tilt, which is really cool where it doesn't mess with your focus. I haven't had one of those cameras. Is uh, I've got a feeling that might be the, some of the Sinar cameras, do they do? They, they have some clevers. I know there's some that have that. It's, it's kind mm -hmm. of a, a really cool feature to have. And I do wish I had that because I'd probably use is, it even more. Is that the, cause my, my, my Toyo camera, I'm sure like, like the Intrepid tilts from the bottom. It doesn't tilt. I, th I think it's just a base tilt. Yeah. 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 So you, you can, so the, again, for our listeners who are just fumbling their way into this, we're getting into some quite d deep areas really. So when they're choosing a camera, for if they're going into the like some of the entry level cameras, which is not to denigrate them because Intrepid, um, you know, their, their cameras are fantastic and you use their eight by 10. But the, the rear movement is from the base, so you can get those shifts in. Are we talking about shifts in perspective? I don't, I'm not sure. It is. You're, you're kind of skewing perspective. You're kind but, of enlarging the foreground in relation to the background. Or but you are, then, you are then changing your focus as well. In, yeah, you have in to a change way. the front as well, yeah. So would you, if, if you're 
tilting that back towards you to make those say to emphasize the foreground those mud flat cracks for example so what what corresponding movement assuming you started off with your camera level which is sort of what you normally do with large format you level everything so you've tilted Mm -hmm. that back standard towards you to get that kind of change in foreground uh emphasis in foreground what are you then doing i'm sure this is something to do with that strange rule called the shot shine fluke (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is something to do with the image plane and the film plane and the lens plane all meeting up at some point isn't it something like that yeah (laughs) yes so what are you you doing with the front basically if you're you're something that back basically i start by um by having everything squared up, everything kind of leveled out. And yeah. then I will tilt the front downward a little bit so that I have proper focus from the foreground out to infinity. And that's a real small amount. You don't need much yeah, of that, do you? very, very small amount. And then I will usually play with the rear tilt and see. I'll just kind of loosen it and kind of move it forward and backwards and see if it's something I want. And when you do that, you will see the effect of it, but also you'll throw things out of focus. Yes. Um, but if I like the effect, then I will go ahead and lock that in. And then you have to change the angle of the front tilt to correspond a little bit more to get things back in focus. And sometimes you have to refocus the camera a little bit as well. But uh, I usually start by uh, you know, getting the front tilt set, and then I experiment with the rear tilt. And if I like it, then I fix the front tilt so everything's sharp again. And folks out there, if you're either getting bored or getting lost, which is very easy to do once you start using word like shine, slime, <laughs> shine, fluke. <laughs> there are some great YouTube videos out there, which um, some people can explain it really well, but it's to do with all these planes lining up, isn't it? And and your shift, instead of getting a backwards, a, a linear depth of field, like in a box type camera, you're, you're changing the way that plane of focus moves in the image. Yeah, it's one of the things where once you actually start working with it it makes a lot yeah, more it's, sense it's easier to do than explain exactly exactly yeah. so i was watching before you came on to chat with us i was watching your death valley zion trip and you were photographing a repetitive pattern on the floor which you said looked like migratory birds yeah and you weren't too happy with the final shot. I can't remember why, but anyway, the yeah. uh, I loved what you were doing with that. And you had your camera not level, but pointing down at the ground, didn't you? Mm-hmm. And you and you just kind of said, "Oh well, I can just get the plane of focus. I've got some front movement. I can't." But you didn't go into a great deal of detail, and and that's fine. But I've got you here, so I was going to ask you if you're pointing your camera down at that, and you were and you were trying to get that repetitive scene, everything in focus. Are you still then having to front take your front element and push it forward? Still, front yeah. tilt? Is that still what you're doing, even though you've shifted the camera down and pointing it at the ground? Yeah. So if you aim the the camera down, or it actually um, in this case, since I was just shooting a repetitive pattern on the ground, um, I'm not worried about perspective and keeping mm-hmm. lines square and everything like that. But by uh, aiming the whole camera downward, um, it actually means I have to use a little bit less tilt um, because the plane of focus is already kind of tipping yes, downward a little bit course. since the camera is. Yeah. Um, but it, it depends on the scene you're shooting. Um, but oftentimes I don't really have a problem kind of aiming the, aiming the camera downward. 
um, for for a scene like that, that works out just well, you, fine. You could start then getting the back standard and starting to make that more upright. Would that? Would that? Yeah, yeah. I could I could tweak the perspective on it if I wanted to um, to have it be somehow different and look more like I'm you know looking right down at it versus kind of. Basically, the distance. Basically, folks, go and get yourself an intrepid camera, because or, or you know some such camera in that sort of price range, which is a great entry camera, and and it'll serve you really well. Go out and play with it. Don't worry about all this stuff we're talking about. Go out and see what cool effects you can do by um, moving things around, and then come back and look at some videos, read some books, uh, but d- don't let all this techie stuff stop you having fun is that that's that's right isn't it ben oh for sure yeah it's it's one of the things where uh i think if a person looks at a large format camera they're going to be a little intimidated by it but once you realize they're actually incredibly simple cameras and and once you kind of get a feeling for the the muscle memory of reaching for the knobs and stuff you don't even think about it anymore you just work with it and then if you use a camera that doesn't have that level of control you'll feel like you're missing out on something simon Unmic you've un unmute your mic. There we go. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm back. I'm I'm just just sitting back there and just nodding my head. Um, the the only the only thing I'll I'll add to that is uh, when you are starting cheap cheap film. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so uh, yeah, get uh, get some foam pan and uh, and it 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 enables you to go out there and try things. Uh, because well, not if you not if you want colours. Well, no, that's true. But I think that when we're talking about getting started in large format photography and learning, you know, these, you know, what these tilts and, and things are, are doing, um, I don't think there are that many of us that can, can afford to be doing that with, uh, with, with color film to start that's off with. That's true. Did you learn with black and white? Did you, or did you waste money with spending thousands on Velvia when you first started, Ben? Uh, the first film I ran through my four by five was Velvia 50. Whoa. So it was kind of a trial by fire and, and <laughs> it took me a few go arounds until I actually finally got some decent exposures. Cause at the time I, I didn't know how to use a light meter. I, I, I got there, set up the camera. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to shoot some film. <laughs> Looked at my light meter. I'm like, I have no clue how to use this meter. So it, it that was my learning curve right there. But you were, you were shooting film before smaller formats though before you went to large format does that be uh just back in like high school and stuff no nothing ever very seriously i I was really doing more digital stuff before right because uh, going to the large format because right right back at the start of the interview it was a case of somebody suggested to you that you 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 try four by five Uh and at the time i was there thinking there's there's something there's something missing you know, you, you don't go from digital to four by five, but that's exactly, it sounds like that's yeah, exactly what you that's, did. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a, it was a bit of a jump, but definitely, definitely a very worthy one. And, and one I'm glad I made. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, I mean, this, I mean, it, it took me so long to actually uh, get the courage uh, to well, it's, it's actually took me a while to get courage to go back to film. I mean, I used to shoot film a long time ago, and then, then I, I stopped. And uh, and, I, and when I started to go back to film again, I had a I had a roll of film in a camera for a very long time before I actually dared press the button on it. Um, yeah. And then, and then I, I got over myself on that one, and I then started to uh, play around with uh, medium format, um, and that took me. Again, that took me a little while to actually do something with that, but I got over that one quite quickly again. Um, but then when I went on to large format, it, it, 
I, I jumped into it far more quickly uh, because I think I just the actual when you talk about the simplicity of the the equipment and it, it absolutely is. I mean, you you look at these things and they look look very very complex in in many respects and they and they do odd things, but ultimately they're just a box. And yeah, you, and you very can, simple. Yeah, and you've just got this this bellows and you've you've got a lens that sticks out the front and the, there's a shutter in the lens and there's a bit of ground glass I, the, the only the only thing that i couldn't work out when i first looked at one of these things close to is actually how to put a film holder in um, i just could i just did not know how you actually physically took a photograph on film because there wasn't a, a film holder with this camera i was looking at so uh. i thinking how'd you take a photo where does yeah. this work <laughs> yeah so I, I did i had to ask for help on that on that one but uh but yeah i i I, I did. I was quite drawn to it simply because of its simplicity. Even though there are far more things you can do to make a mess of a photograph, they are intrinsically super simple devices. Oh, for sure, definitely. Ben, um, we. I, I was looking at Intrepid's eight by ten camera at the photography show. Their very latest version. I'm not sure what mark it is now. Uh, mark two now. No, it's past that. Oh, for the eight by ten, they're on their second generation. Oh, are they? Okay. On the four by five, they're up to their fourth. Oh right. So I'm talking about. So they had the eight by ten, both four by five and eight by ten, with um, the aluminium black aluminium beds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that what you've got? Have, have they? Yeah. So I, I do have one of the new ones, and I also a, have one of the previous ones as well. But you were very impressed because you, you, you after you destroyed a couple of cameras by leaving <laughs> them out overnight on sand dunes. Yeah. Uh, I think you might have done that. At least twice. I, I I destroyed two cameras in the course of two months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so you 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 got yourself, uh, and then you had a lightweight one, which I don't think you were quite happy with because it tended to move when you tipped it down. I, but yeah, that that, that one, one was. Broke, or did you give that, or did you sell that? I made a decision to sell it, but then before I actually I could, it was destroyed. But mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> not a good track record. No, but then you got the intrepid. But you were, you, you, um, you, you're full of praise for it, and I think you were comparing it with the sort of stability of the Arca Swiss, which is probably considerably more pocket money for you. And you were really quite impressed at the stability of the, uh, of the say the front movements. I think you did. You do some mods to make it a bit more stable, but I think yes. It, yeah. Um, on the first generation, the for whatever reason, I found that I had to take some gaffer's tape and kind of wrap it around the base of the front standard where it meets the focusing bed. Mm. And once you do that, it was actually really solid. Uh, if you don't do that, it wasn't quite as solid. Yeah. Um, but the it, it actually, in the, the rear standard, is a bit more solid than the Arca Swiss. Um, the front standard was about the same. But the, the first generation... Uh, eight by ten from Intrepid is good for straightforward shots without very elaborate movements where you're trying to adjust the front tilt and stuff along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, but the second generation is uh, it's much better designed in that respect because you have dual knobs to control different functions on the front standard. So it's one that I'll feel a lot more comfortable if I have to dial in some front tilt or some swing or some of the other stuff that we yeah, do. As I, had the first, I had the first generation four by five. And I think that I was telling Max at the photo show, I had some gripes with it with knobs that just came off in my hand and try, yes, trying try to get the, trying to get the rise on the front standard was a pain in the backside, quite frankly. And then yeah. if you had to do rise and tilt, it, it was all linked. And then if the knobs didn't come off in your hand, it was really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but they look like they've solved that problem now on the latest ones. And it was, and for five hundred US, uh, five hundred US pounds, five hundred UK pounds, um, it's got me tempted. But I'm not quite there yet because somebody on our Facebook group, Ben, posted uh, a question a couple of days ago saying, "Why would I want to move from four by five, five by four to eight by ten, ten by eight? Uh, sell it to me." Uh, it's a good thing to do if you're crazy because it's <laughs> insanity. Um, in reality, uh, a four by five camera is going to give you all the print quality you will ever need. Um, they're easier to work with. They're better in the wind. Lenses are smaller and lighter. The film is less expensive. Um, but that being said, the people I know that have done both four by five and eight by 10, you know, myself included, there's something about seeing those eight by 10 transparencies or negatives or whatever it is you're shooting that is very addictive that somehow makes it worthwhile but i cannot justify it from a print quality standpoint because i've done uh four by five i've done prints for my four by five that are uh 40 by 50 inches i've done prints on my eight by ten that are four by 40 by 50 inches and the only real difference you see is a little finer grain on the eight by ten a little more yeah. croppability on the eight by ten so it's not a rational decision, but it is one that I think when people have crossed that threshold, um, it's tough to go back to four by five once you're used to eight by 10. Um, and it slows you down a lot more too, which can be seen as a good thing or bad thing depending on what you're shooting. Yeah. And it looks damn cool as well, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to lie. It does. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, okay. So there's the answer to that question. Partly, anyway. I, I mean, I, I've just started using some 8x10 x-ray film because it's cheap. And I put it in an 8x10 pinhole camera that was given to me. So my experience so far with 8x10 is x-ray film in a pinhole camera. And I've had, I'm getting some great results. And I'm, I'm actually thinking, hmm. And I was taking some pictures of my daughter at the weekend on direct positive paper using wide open lens i thought oh wouldn't it be lovely to if i had an intrepid 8 by 10 to do um with, with a maybe an old lens or a or a simple single meniscus lens so i can hear simon's ears pricking up now talking about lenses um and then just to be able to have an 8 by 10 x-ray picture with a lens camera or if i could afford it normal film and then make some beautiful contact prints because i that's all i could do i couldn't couldn't scan them easily, or um, uh, or indeed print print them. I don't. I have a four five enlarger, but not an eight by ten. But in my head, I'm trying to justify purchase of an Intrepid camera. My wife's not listening. No, she's not here. <laughs> and um, I'm thinking I could just I could then buy some X-ray film, which I have anyway, eight by ten X-ray film. And I've just got these visions of these eight by ten portraits of people because I love taking portraits of people. And making these beautiful contact prints or maybe using them in alternative processes, which I do a little bit of as well. Yeah, that's so, definitely one of the advantages of 8x10 for that kind of stuff, for sure. Or someone could, I can hear people shouting at me now, will you just make a digital negative? And you know what? Yeah, I can do that, but that's nowhere near as much fun as making a negative in a camera. Yeah, it's in different. My, in my mind, anyway. Yeah. Simon. Simon. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, again, I'm I'm just I'm just sitting here quite quite happily listening to the two of you talking. But uh, seeing that you 
you mentioned the word lens. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was my cue to come in. Um, Probably. Yeah. Um, I am rather curious uh, to hear what uh, lenses that you, uh, you, you, you have. Um, did I hear right? You, you have three main lenses. Did I hear that right? Is that, I have uh, like two different sets of lenses, really. I have one for really lightweight stuff, like backpacking stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I have another set for um, bigger lenses, lead in more light, larger image circles, stuff like that. Um, but my most used lens, it's a 300 millimeter, uh, 5.6 made by Nikon. Um, but I also have a Fuji, the 300 millimeter, it's an F 8.5. Um, also covers eight by 10 just fine. And it weighs a fraction of what the big one does. So I have, uh, uh my main lenses, my big lenses, I have a, a 150 wide angle, uh, 300 millimeter, a 450 and a 600. And then for my lightweight kit, I have a, a 240, a 300 and a 450. Um, and I'll use those for backpacking. They're really dim lenses. Some of them are like F 11.5 or something like that, but uh, really, really lightweight. Um, so it kind of depends on where I'm going as far as which which lenses I'm going to reach for. But I've been happy with the sharpness of all of them. So when you when you're talking about dim dim lenses, there uh, that isn't too much of an issue if you if you're shooting in good light. Yes, um, correct. So how how do you deal with that, or do you simply just don't use those lenses if 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 you're in relatively low light conditions? Uh, you know, it really depends on the scene. Um, if it's if it's just like in a, in a canyon somewhere where I'm kind of shooting in the shade, I'll, I'll just make do, and I can I can usually see it fine enough. But uh, it would be next to impossible to use any of those lenses really before sunrise to set up a shot. Um, so those are the times where I'll set the camera up the day before, leave it there overnight, and then <laughs> maybe it is or isn't destroyed uh, by by morning time. But the lenses have always survived. The, times that the cameras have tumbled um but yeah there, there's always a creative way in one way or another um, but the dimmer lenses can be a little trickier to work with if you don't have like full sun um, in really bright conditions so another another point then about lenses i mean it's it sounds like and i can totally understand the sharpness is is very important to you especially being a you know a landscape photographer um so it's you, you like to have good sharpness across the frame. Um, and you also will choose lenses based upon uh, ease of use for the shooting conditions that you're going to have. So whether if you're shooting very close to a car, you, you might bring out the big ones. And uh, yeah. if, you, if you're going into the into the hills for three days, then you'll you'll take the light stuff. Um, but do you have lenses or do you, would, you might, would you pick a particular lens over another lens because of the kind of look that that lens will give you, even if it's the same focal length? You know, for the stuff I'm doing, um, I don't really see too much of a difference between them. I think if I was shooting portraits or something where there's like a shallow depth of field involved, um, I, I think it would be possible to see greater differences between them. Um, but for what I'm doing, it's really just a matter of, you know, choosing the the lens that has the right focal length for what I'm looking to do. And then whether I'm using the light one or the heavier one, depending on what all I'm carrying. Um, but all of them, they're, they're all pretty modern lenses. I'm usually using them fairly stop down. Um, so they're all going to be a, a pretty good sharp lens. I, I'd have a hard time seeing the difference between my two 300 millimeter lenses um, since I'm usually shooting at f45 anyways. Um, so it's really about the, the weight of the lens and just making sure I have the right focal length for what I'm doing. 
Actually, that, that and that's the point. When you, you're down at F45, and I assume you're talking more about being on uh, eight, 8 by 10 than... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you were on, on the smaller format, if you're on 4 by 5 is there because diffraction is is going to kick in at, at yeah. some point and that's and just just quickly that's the point where lenses actually lose some sharpness for lots mm -hmm. of complicated reasons where when when the aperture is is uh, closed down too far so is is there a a point where you just generally don't like to go beyond uh, with say with a 4 by 4 with a 4 by 5 lens uh 4 by 5 it'd probably be f22 it's probably be about my limit on there on uh, on eight by ten f forty five is my limit. Um, when I used to shoot four by five, I was I was shooting a lot at, at twenty two or so. Maybe um, maybe even a little bit more open that depending on what the subject was. Um, on and then on the eight by ten, I noticed uh, I've I've done some experiments where I shot a little bit more stop down than f forty five, and, and things drop off pretty fast. So forty five is kind of my safe zone as far as a compromise between depth of field and uh, not quite hitting the bad parts of diffraction yet. Right. That's, that's, so you, I was going to say, uh, that's, that's really useful to me. That. I appreciate that because I've, uh, the few times I've been out there, um, I've been stopping down and I've been going past F22. Yeah, been, me too. I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it really depends on the scene. Um, and you might be okay going a little bit more beyond that, but also some of these things, you, you might not really notice it unless you have a picture at F22, then one at 32, and you compare mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, because do you, you don't really as, know what, what you're you missing. See? What do you see as the main difference? What, what, kind of I mean, soft, diffuse kind of look. Is that what you're talking um, about, Simon, where you're yeah. talking about diffraction? Yes. Yeah, okay. it's just kind of a little bit of a dreamlike look to the image, kind of a little soft where... You look at it like this should be a little sharper than this. So, is that all the way through? You know the image, yeah. foreground to back. Yeah, yeah all the way through. Mm -hmm. And it's not horrible because, ultimately, with a four by five, you're not enlarging it that dramatically when you're making a print. Yeah. Um, but it's the sort of thing where you will notice it. And, and I have one of my photos. It was taken at f sixty four, and I still have way too shallow of a depth of field. It's it's a photo that is one that people um, uh, they, they often say it's one of their favorites of mine. Where it's this. Uh, this white rock that's kind of uh, in this root ball. It kind of looks like a heart shape. I call it Soul of the Ancients. And actually that one, I shot it at F64. I still don't have enough depth of field. Um, I'm actually tempted to go back and reshoot that one, uh, not stop down quite as far, but actually try to do a focus stack on 8x10 um, <laughs> because that scene still looks exactly the same as when I shot it in 2012. And so I'm really tempted to go back there and do that this summer just before the scene kind of gets, gets messed up. It's worth mentioning, talking about manipulating planes of focus that you can do with large format, but it's, it's not always the be-all and end-all, is it, Ben? If you've got some tree poking up halfway through the scene and you're trying to – you put some front tilt on your camera to get that near to four, near foreground to – far distant sharpness if you've got some big tall objects going through that shot you can bits of it can be out of focus still oh yeah yeah there's and, and actually this is stuff too or if you ever get like a really high resolution like a drum scan of the image uh, it's a good way of kind of seeing how you're doing with regard to technique yeah because there's some scenes where you know the ability to kind of take your plane of focus and kind of lay it down to follow you know a ground plane that works fine so long as nothing sticks up vertically through it because just like <laughs> you mentioned, it's going to get blurry at the top. Yeah. Um, so there's certain times when you really can't do that, like in a forest or stuff along those lines. 
Um, but there's also some situations where you have to use some front tilt to try to get as much of the scene in focus as possible. But there are certain parts of that scene that you're not going to get sharp that you just really can't. It's just not possible. So and I've seen I've seen you talk about those images. Yeah. I can't recall, but then you just say, "Well, that's actually you you acknowledge that you've lost a bit, but actually it's acceptable because it's where you want it to be sharp." You say that's I've nailed yeah, it where I need exactly. It to be sharp. You, you just find like what are the, like the three most important parts of the scene, and if you can get yeah. all three of those, then it's forgivable that maybe there's a certain part, maybe the immediate foreground or kind of off in the mid ground where the focus, the plan focus is kind of skimming over the top of it. It's a little out of focus. Mm. Um, and I, I remember seeing this for the first time when I was, um, I saw one of uh, Michael Fatali's prints and he's, he's an eight by 10 shooter uh, producing Cibachrome prints. Mm. And I remember seeing, you know, same sort of thing where he had this, I think it was like this beautiful waterfall in the background, some like maples on the foreground and the slope kind of drops down uh, across the Canyon to where the waterfall is on the other side. And the area kind of in the midground was not very sharp because he was connecting the foreground to the waterfall. And I remember seeing that going like, okay, I, I totally see that, you know, it's, it's a compromise that you make in order to get the most important parts of the image sharp. And um, I also remember seeing this on, um, on an Ansel Adams um, print of some sand dunes where the dunes are, are nice and sharp, the mountains are sharp, but kind of in the midground, you can see the plane of focus is skimming over it. And when you kind of come to the realization that you can't get everything perfectly tacked sharp, it's actually kind of liberating because you just focus on the important stuff that's, you know, important for that image itself. And, and then it's, then it's just fine. That's a really good bit of advice because you can, you, you can find yourself straining for things that are just impossible. To yeah, achieve. for sure. Ben. Yes. Ben, I've got to ask you, are you living the dream yet? Uh, I, I think I'm getting there. I, I gotta say, um, I, I think for most people, I think their dream would just to be to do what they enjoy in life, um, and, and find ways of having that pay the bills. Um, so I, I say I am, I'm very much, very much getting there. And actually one of the things that, um, way back when, before I started pursuing photography, I mean, uh, back when I was in college stuff, I was thinking, Hey, do I want to be a photographer? What do I want to do? And my main thing is that I, I didn't want photography to become work. I, I didn't want it to become something that I felt like I had to do. Mm. And I didn't want to resent like picking up the camera and feeling like, you know, let's count to three, then let's, let's be productive because you got to be productive and you got to be creative. You got to, you know, do all that, you know, on command. Um, and so I, I've kind of structured everything in a way that uh, encourages me to go out, to be creative, uh, spend time in the field and to pursue what I really do enjoy doing. Um, and I think I could say that I would be living the dream at some point if, you know, just leaving, living a comfortable life, paying the bills and, uh, pursuing really what I do enjoy. And, um, I'm getting pretty close to that. That's really great to hear. And I think, you know, in the past, before the days of social media, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to make your living from being a photographer, you'd go into the world of advertising or, you know, shooting weddings. I don't know if anyone made the living just shooting weddings, but you know, you'd do advertising and stock pictures and stuff like that. But what what you've uh, and others have hit upon, and and I think you, you do it remarkably well, is you know you're put, you're putting this great content out there, and you know you put your work into portfolios, you sell those, but you say you know, you're quite open and say, well, actually, you know, make a donation and, and then I can carry on 
doing this and putting this great content out and helping me live the dream. Uh, because, you know, we don't, we're not bombarded with adverts, you know, as you say at the end, it's not clicking through to sell you something. Um, so you, you've kind of hit on this really good relationship between offering great content. Um, I guess it's you're not under pressure, but you've got some income because folks, you know, subscribe to, you know, g- give you donations, don't they? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then you can sell your, um, sell your work as well. And, and so that, uh, that take, I guess that kind of method, that kind of, um, um, that, that kind of solution to how you make money from photography is, is less pressurized than, um, having to sort of shoot weddings or stock photos and stuff. You know? D- definitely. Um, and like, I, I never, um, I don't like being sold something. Um, and, and I think that's kind of my, my strategy with, with, with all this is to try to find a way to, to make it work, but in a way that makes it feel like I'm not trying to sell people something, because I think that really turns people off um, because it makes people kind of question the motivations. And so by kind of doing it this way, I mean, the main motivation is that I just want to keep doing this and keep doing what I love. And um, the reason I turned off the ads is I I think they're kind of an annoyance for people, but also with the, um, ad-based um, uh, revenue on YouTube, it encourages people to do increasingly more outlandish stuff and attention-seeking and, and stuff along those lines, which just does not fit my personality. And I would feel very, um, very awkward about doing that. So I figured just turn off the ads and just put out there something that I enjoy. Hopefully some other people will enjoy it as well. And just, you know, keep it really, really simple like that. And uh, it's been, it's been working pretty well so far and um, something I plan on sticking with for, for as long as I can, because it's, it allows me to put the energy into something that, that I truly enjoy and it makes it where it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like I'm trying to, you know, produce something that, that gets all the views and the ad revenue and all the stuff that comes along with that. And if people want to see what gear you're using, you know, I know you, you do have, there are some little pop-ups to say, see what equipment I'm using, you know, and you, people can go and do that, can't they, on your on your videos? Yeah, I, I do have some of the stuff as far as like some of the backpacking and stuff as yeah. well. So there's some affiliate links there. It doesn't really amount to to very much, um, but, you know, it's every every little bit does does count towards, towards something, but well, I've, definitely I've, not something I really push. I've, no, you don't know. But I've seen things and thought, "Oh, that's really good." Like stone stone gear, is it? The guys, who oh, make, yeah. the guy, who, the, he's a one man band who makes some really cool film holders and and oh and yeah, he makes pre- really good stuff. Yeah, but you, so you the recommendations that you do make, it's not you know you're making them because you know the stuff is damn good and works really well. Yeah, and that's and that's actually what it comes down to because I mean the the moment anyone starts a YouTube channel and puts stuff out there, you're going to have people reaching out to you from all over. You know, hey, you know, do you want to collaborate on this and do that? And I just I turn all that stuff down. I mean, I, I have a, a few kind of working relationships with a with a few different companies and stuff, um, but it's just stuff that I that I actually truly do enjoy using. And uh, yeah, Stone Photo Gear, uh, Dan Stone, um, yeah. he makes really cool stuff. Uh, printer covers, film holder sleeves, stuff like that. So it's it's actually helped me out quite a bit so I can better stay organized in the field. 
I think I'm on an email list for him. I, I'm sure I am because he, he, or certainly I'm on some kind of social media. I get things, social feed from him. I get things pop up like I'm just about to send these, you know, eight by 10 film holders cards into oh, somebody. Instagram, is it? Could yeah, be Instagram. Instagram yeah. Yeah. So they look great. Well, I'm pleased to see that you're getting close to living your dream, Ben, and uh, more power to your elbow is all I can say. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Well, I think on that on that that happy note, I think we'll probably start to um, bring things to to an end. Um, uh, ben, it's been it's been fantastic to sit here uh, listening to the two of you chat as much as anything. Uh, was I've been picking up things all all the way through it, um, so it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, are there any are there any shout? We'll, at the end of the show, we'll come back to you and, and uh, say about um, yeah, where where people can watch your YouTube channel and your your website and things like that. But are there any any shout outs? Any, any do you want to say hello to anybody while while you're here? Your mum, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I have to do the obligatory say uh, say hello to to Alan Brock. Uh, just uh, just real quick, uh, he uh, I, I recently bought a really large. Uh, printer, one of the big Epsons that weighs a couple hundred pounds. And you spent yeah. two thousand pounds on ink. I did, yeah. Oh, so it's, it's, it'll be a thirsty printer. But he he has one as well. He has actually the the bigger one that can do the forty four inch wide paper. But back when I was kind of researching it, I, um, I I was asking him advice on it. He says, you know, just just make sure that you have a friend that lifts weights to help you move it. <laughs> and so he actually flew into town last Friday. And then an hour later, after he got to my house, uh, a big And when big you say flew into town, you mean he actually, he didn't just catch a chartered flight. He flew his own plane. Presumably. Well, actually, in this case, it was just a commercial airline. Oh, right? If it was oh. up to him, he would have taken his own plane. But uh, yeah, yeah he, he, he flew into San Diego. He drove to my house. And about an hour later, a big delivery truck shows up with a 240-pound printer and right. uh, said, uh, you know, welcome to San Diego. You're going to. Remember that advice about having a friend that lifts weights to, to move? Yeah, yeah, we're going to do that today. So I have to definitely give him a shout out because uh, he helped me move a printer after uh, flying into to San Diego. And Alan has his own YouTube channel yeah. as well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's a pilot. He's a dentist. He, uh, he does everything, rock climb. So, yeah, so definitely uh, definitely shout out to Alan Brock. <laughs> and and uh, you were yesterday, I think it was, or possibly the day before you um it was published that you were on Studio C41 as well on their, their one of their YouTube chats. Yeah, yeah, they have a new new video uh, sort of video podcast going. That's it. So it, it's it's funny. I was uh, um, in a in a chat room with uh, quite a few other uh, podcasters um, because actually I just think about the time this podcast goes out, it won't be April the first because it's April the first uh, today, and uh, we we did this thing where. Uh, along with M from Emulsif and I think about nine other podcasts uh, where we, we got together to say that we weren't going to podcast by ourselves anymore. We were just going to amalgamate and have one giant podcast. Um, <laughs> anyways, we've got, sort of, got, a, got a Facebook group as well. Yeah, there is. There is that, there is that Facebook group. Which I can't even remember its name now. It's that long because the, the, <laughs> the name of the podcast was the amalgamation of all of the podcasts put together. Um, and uh, one of those uh, hosts was uh, Bill from... Uh, C41 in the in the chat he mentioned that he um, had just um, put out a a video chat with with you and I was there thinking oh we've got Ben on tonight 
There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, I, and I was going to watch that, and I thought to myself, well, well, no, I'll watch it after um, our interview because otherwise, I'm going to have, I'll have no questions. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, looking forward to hearing he, hearing and watching you uh, on the, the Studio C Forty One podcast as well. Uh, not podcast, Very cool. interview. Um, okay. Um, I think uh, we didn't mention this last week, um, but uh, there's there's a potential for letting Andrew and I live the dream. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we, we have a page set up on uh, coffee, that's ko-fi.com. Um, and that's a site where if you like what you do, you can donate to us and uh, help us with the running of the podcast and buying, well, actually buying, buying the microphone that Andrew is using at the moment. Um, that, that, Which I bought. <laughs> exactly. That's so, fine. I do, I do it out of love. Yeah, well, well, it'll be nice to reimburse you on that on that investment. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that'd be good. So um, if anybody wants to uh, do that, if you go to coffee.com, that's K-O-F-I.com, and just do a search for uh, large format photography podcast, uh, you'll find our page there. Um, and if you don't, it's not an issue. We uh, we still love you anyway. Just uh, We're just quite happy for you to listen to us. And it'll just take longer to live the dream. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, right, Andrew, have you got any shout outs uh, this week? Um, no, I was too busy making notes to talk to Ben to think about that. No, that's, that's, that's okay. Well, I, have, I haven't got any other than what I've already just done there with the. Uh, I mean, I'll just sh shout out the Facebook group, actually, because that's growing. It's 170 odd people now after a couple of weeks. So, you know, there's some great guys on there. Um, uh, many of whom I'm sure will pop up on this podcast over the months and years to come. I have no doubt, no doubt at all. Um, well, I haven't got any uh, shout outs other than one I've uh, just, just given out there. So uh, going, going back to you, Ben, um, so how can people uh, watch you, read your website and, if, and any other social media outlets that you're out there? How, where, where, where should they go to? Uh, the main thing is just my website, which is just benhorn.com. It's B-E-N-H-O-R-N-E.com. That'll link to everything, the YouTube, the Instagram, all the all the other fun stuff out there. But it's all it's all right on there. That, that's cool. So, so thank you. Thank you very, very much again. Uh, Andrew, how can people keep up with you when you're not on this podcast? Oh, I'm pretty much Warboys Snapper across most media. Uh, sometimes I use my name, which is Andrew Bartram, uh, but Warboy Snapper or Andrew Bartram on Instagram, Twitter, um, you name it really, Facebook. You can find me. Yeah, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everywhere. Um, I'm omnipresent. Have you, did, did you, have you mentioned Lensless? No, I don't like to keep pushing other podcasts. <laughs> my, na my name isn't Simon Forster. <laughs> Well, so, you can also be found on the Lensless podcast. Uh, well, not at the moment because we're like in Friends. We're we're taking a break, me and Corey, only for a month. We're not split up permanently. Oh. There'll be a, yeah. re a reunion yeah. show coming up soon. Yes, we're 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 not putting any shows out through April, mainly because Corey's schedule is pretty intense. Uh, but we're lining guests up for May as we speak, and uh, a slightly rejigged format. We're hoping to have a third co-host come on, on maybe on the first show back, but uh, she won't be on every week, probably, but um, she will be a regular co-host. So we're going to shake things up a little bit 
and see how that goes. But we'll still have a guest every week. Excellent. Uh, that sounds, yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah. So the Lensless Podcast, going from strength to strength. Good stuff. Um, do you do any pin... I don't suppose you do. Can you shoot pinhole on your 8x10? <laughs> I, I have not. I have oh. not. Maybe, maybe sometime I'll just put a you know a lens board on there with a big couple three hole to have a really very, very fast uh, uh, pinhole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to take some nerve to do pin, pinhole with a... On, Eight by ten and uh, and, and Valvier, isn't it really? I won't. Yeah, I, oh, won't, yeah. I won't invite you onto the Lensless podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, I can. Uh, be f- I've got a website which is Simon Forster Photographic, which is where I sell lens adapters and maybe a few lenses and things like that. Um, I'm on Flickr as. I think I'm down there as It's Fozzy or Simon Forster, but I haven't done much there for a while. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Twitter as Simon4 or Simon Forster Photographic. Either way, I'm sure you can find me that way. Uh, We have an email here. Um, If you want to have a a letter read out, if you've got some advice that you would like uh, one of our learned guests to help us with, and that's largeformatphotographypodcast at gmail.com. Sorry, it's a long one, but that was the only one I could get. Um, and uh, that's that's just about it. Uh, just thank uh, Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for our music, which is Two Fingered Johnny. Um, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this podcast, and it'd be great if you can join us again next time. So Absolutely. thank you. Thank you.